I want to thank you, all of you, for uh, having me here this morning to talk. I have the unenviable... Uh, yeah. The unenviable task of preaching on the topic of envy uh, this morning. Uh, but it's one that, as I was looking through the list of the possibilities that they gave to me, I thought, you know, there's quite a few things in here that we could talk about. I could go with drunkenness or carousing. Carousing's an interesting one. Uh, but envy was the one that I settled on because that, just being perfectly honest, is probably the one that I struggle with the most personally when it comes to this list of the works of the flesh. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think that uh, for most of us, at some point in time in our life, we look at what we have, we look at where God has placed us, we look at what God has given to us, and then we look to the right at our neighbor and what he has and where God's got him, and we look to our left at our other neighbor at where God has got him, and we think to ourselves, why, why isn't that me? Why don't I have that? Uh, why am I left out? Why am I not uh, experiencing these things that, that my, my brothers and sisters or my friends or, or so forth are experiencing? And, and that's envy. That's envy that's creeping in. And, and uh, just a basic definition of envy goes something like this. It's a, a feeling of, of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. Let's say that again. It's a feeling of discontentment. We're going to talk a little bit about discontentment here in a moment. Or resentment. That's aroused by someone else's possessions, their qualities, or their luck. And, and, the, and the Lord has a, has a dim view of, of this type of an attitude, this type of envy. Because as, as Noah just read, at the end of that list, the Apostle Paul says that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. So envy is one of those sins that is, that is something that, that God, he takes a very dim view of it. And it, it's something for which the Lord, of course, went to the cross and died. Now, I said that, you know, I, I wrestle with envy, or I have throughout, you know, in my life at very different times, but... Not all envy is necessarily bad. Something that somebody has or a quality that they have that you would aspire to is, is at times a very good thing. I'll tell you this story. Uh, a number of years ago, I was back here at Emmaus uh, for a funeral. And the funeral was actually for the gentleman whose uh, name is, adorns this, this room here, Dave Glock. Uh, he was one of my professors. He was actually the very first uh, faculty member of Emmaus that I ever met at a Bible study in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He was the reason that I came to Emmaus Bible College, really. And Dave and I became very good friends over the years, and I've got such stories uh, that I could tell. But, but Dave, you know, he, he passed away, and he went into the presence of the Lord, and we all gathered down at the Marble Chapel for Dave's funeral. And as part of the, or part of the service, another gentleman who is very, very much uh, a part of the history of this college uh, also a Dave, uh, Dr. Smith, stood up to give a prayer. And he, he, he prayed the opening prayer for, for Mr. Glock's funeral. And he stood up there and he started to pray. And he prayed. And he prayed. And he prayed. 
we're looking at like about 10 minutes at this point in time of prayer. And I'm sitting there with my family and uh, all three of my children and my youngest, Haddon, is about five years old at the time. And Haddon's a little squirmy, as you know, most five-year-old boys tend to be, but Haddon is particularly squirmy. Uh, and, and Dr. Smith is continuing to pray, and he is, you know, beginning with the law and the prophets. <laughs> he unpacked God and his sovereignty and his goodness and his faithfulness and his glory and his majesty. And it is probably one of the most beautiful prayers that I have ever heard in my entire life. And he finally comes to the end of it. And he said, he's got, he had this deep voice, just incredibly deep bass voice. And he gets to the end of it and he says, amen. And it's all, you know, been in the Marble Chapel, a lot of acoustics there. It's all quiet and still. And suddenly this little voice, four seats down from me, that looks a lot like me, says, that was the longest prayer I have ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. Thanks, Haddon. Once I got over the, the, the redness that came to my face in that moment and everything like that, and I, and I had a chance to think about what preceded that, what prompted Haddon to make this declaration about the length of the prayer. And I got to thinking about that prayer, and I had a bit of envy. I wish I prayed the way that Dr. Smith prayed. You see, so not all envy... My point is that not all envy is, is bad. But when the Bible talks about envy in the manner in which it talks about it in Galatians chapter 5, that's a bad kind of envy, isn't it? That's an envy that is rooted in discontentment with what God has given to us. It's an envy that's rooted in a lack of satisfaction. I heard that word used uh, by the, the, the leader of your team uh, as he prayed just a few moments ago. We would be satisfied in Christ. And at the heart of envy, the heart of looking uh, with, with desire, ungodly desire, or, or resent at those around us who have something that we don't have or, or are doing something that we're not doing, we really are saying to God, you're not satisfying me, aren't we? I want more than what you have given to me. I'm not content where you have me right now, Lord. But if you would just give me what you gave him, I would be. Then I will be satisfied. Then I will be content. Then I will give you praise and give you thanks for all of your goodness if you'll just give me that. How twisted and broken is that? You know who that sounds like? Let me read you a passage from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and you tell me if you recognize it. We'll see just how much you've been learning. <laughs> how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you have weakened the nations. You said in your heart, 
I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. You recognize that? You know what Old Testament book it is? Isaiah, thousand points extra credit. You know what chapter? 14. 2,000 points extra credit. Isaiah chapter 14, that is probably a commentary on the fall of Satan. For 3,000 extra points, do you know what the other Old Testament prophet is that does the same thing, talks about Satan before his fall? Ezekiel. Tell me another chapter. 28. Dude, you just go ahead and graduate right now. (laughs) That's exactly right. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, super easy to remember. You just take 14, you add another 14, you get 28. You got the two Old Testament passages on Satan and his fall, right? There, that's free, by the way. You can now navigate Isaiah and Ezekiel. I don't know what it was at the heart of Satan's fall. Some commentators have said it was pride. He looked at his beauty. Ezekiel describes him uh, as being the, the most anointed cherub, this beautiful angel, the height of God's angelic creation. He had access to God that was un, unfettered and unprecedented and unlike any other. And, and he, he, he was described with all these different brilliant gems, not because he's some angelic being that's covered with uh, stones of, 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 of value, but because that's how Isaiah or how Ezekiel saw him, and the only way that he could draw out the, the beauty of this being, this, this star of the morning, was with the most brilliant uh, and most valuable gems that he could. This was who Satan was. But then Ezekiel says that iniquity was found within him. He said, I will. Be like God. I will be like the Most High. And at its heart, again, I don't know what what is his pride. I don't don't know what it was. What's the root of the original sin in in Lucifer? I don't know. But I do know this. He looked at himself. He looked at his position as lofty as it was. And he said, that's not enough. I want more. I'm not content I'm not satisfied. I want to be like you. Do you know where else you find in the Bible that very same kind of thinking, thought process? I will be like God, except for he changes the pronouns and says, you will be like God. Where? Genesis Genesis chapter 3. Lucifer, now fallen in the form of a snake, Satan, comes before Eve and he says, did God really say that in the day in which you eat from the knowledge from this tree that you will surely die? Did God really say that? He's given you this garden. He's given you all of this beauty. He's given you this wonderful place to be, but he's put this limitation on you and he's put these boundaries in place. And he said, you cannot go beyond these boundaries. And Satan comes along and he uses the exact same temptation on Eve that he himself succumbed to. And he said, I am not satisfied with the boundaries and the place that you have put me, God. And Eve, you shouldn't be either. There's more. There's more. 
and you know the story, you know what happens there. At its root, envy, ungodly, wicked envy, is the rejection of God's provision for you and I. But it's worse even than that. And I'm going to suggest to you that when we, are, when we give in to the temptation of envy, when we are resentful of what another person has or another ability or quality that they have or something like that, we are, we are actually rejecting. We are actually rejecting God's will for us. We are actually rejecting God's lordship over us. We are saying, I will be Lord. I will be the one who decides when it's enough. I will be the one who decides whether or not I should have what he has. Not you, God. See, the breeding ground for envy always is comparison. Looking at what my neighbor has or what somebody else has and comparing it with what I have. And the Bible is, is full of stories of, of godly people who fall victim to this comparison. If we had time, we could open the pages of Scripture and look at, look at several of those examples. Uh, but that, that's really what it comes down to is, is we're comparing what God has given you but he hasn't necessarily given to me, or vice versa. In contrast to this envy, of which those who practice will not inherit the kingdom of God, is truly contentment and satisfaction. But it's satisfaction and contentment that has as its object something very different than envy has as its object. You see, what does envy objectify? It objectifies things. It objectifies abilities. It objectifies uh, all sorts of different things that, that we see in our world and that we, we put a, a, a value upon. Contentment and satisfaction, the way the Bible talks about it, has a totally different object, doesn't it? Its object is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because we know from the words or from the pages of Scripture that that is the only place that true contentment can be found. Guys, you're going to go out here in a, a year, two years, three years, four years, however long you're, you're here. You're going to go out into a world, into a society that has absolutely no concept of what true contentment is and where it is found. You're going to go out into a world and a society that is built and fueled not upon contentment, but upon getting as much as you can and being driven to do so by looking at the people around you and seeing what they have and wanting it, craving it, idolizing it. That's the world that you're going out into. You know this. You, you're part of our world. You're part of our society. You, you experience this in your own lives now. 
But as the Lord sends you out into ministry, and I, I hope that for each one of you he does, that he has a plan and a purpose for you, wherever he puts you, to minister his grace and his truth to this lost and dying world. I hope he does so, and, 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 and he does so in opening your eyes to seeing this need for contentment and satisfaction. And I hope he equips you, and I hope you're doing the work that you need to do while you're here at Emmaus to be equipped so that you can be a vessel that communicates where contentment can be found. The only place that it can be found, where true satisfaction is found, and it's only in the person of Jesus Christ. It's only in what he came to this earth to do to finish that work of solving that sin problem, which began all those years ago in Isaiah 14 and, and, and then exploded here on our own earth in Genesis 3. And you're going to go into a world understanding their struggle understanding this issue with envy. And so I wanna, what I want to do with the last couple minutes that I have is I want to teach you how to fight envy. Okay? How to fight envy. And I'm actually going to let King David do it. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Psalm 37. And we're just going to look at the first seven verses of this psalm. And I want you to see here in this psalm how King David fought envy. And I think it'll be instructive. David writes in Psalm 37, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious towards wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Six things that we are to do if we want to fight envy, at least as King David did. The first thing he says in verse 3 is trust. Trust in the Lord. David, the man after God's own heart, it says here that in this context of telling his readers, don't be envious towards wrongdoers, the ones who seem to have everything, the ones who seem like even though they don't have a relationship with God, they don't seek to serve him, they don't worship him, they worship themselves, and everything seems to prosper for them. How is that fair, and why is it that when I'm trying to be a good Christian, everything is lesser? David says, trust. Don't be envious believe put your trust in the lord and you know turn yourself over to him turn your future over to him turn your present over to him turn everything over to the lord and trust him because he can be trusted he's proven it and david's going to say something very interesting in the middle of this psalm about that very thing in his own experience so number 1 he says trust number 2 he says, delight, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. What do you delight in? 
What's the thing that brings you just joy and fills you with just a sense of fullness and satisfaction? David says, that's the Lord. That's the object of, of our delight. That when I wake up in the morning, Lord, fill my mind with you. As I lay down to go to sleep, let my last thoughts be on you. Let me be dwelling on your goodness, on, on your provision for me, on the greatness of who you are, your magnificence. Your, 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 your majesty. I want to delight in you. I want to have every thought that comes into my mind concerning you to fill me with a greater desire to know you and to walk with you and to love you and to receive your love and to be satisfied in it. Delight yourself in the Lord. Thirdly, verse five, commit your way. To the Lord. This is an act of the volition that David is talking about here. He's saying, I'm making this decision right now. I might have to make it again tomorrow. Might have to make it again in an hour. But I'm going to make it again and again and again that I am going to commit myself to you, God. I know your ways are the best ways. And I want to commit myself to following you every day of my life. And I'm entrusting you to enable me to fulfill that commitment, to stay on that path with you wherever you lead me. I'm committed to this. This isn't half-hearted Christianity. This isn't just during the, 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 the praise and worship time when I feel my heart all bubbly. It's when it's hard. It's when I get the bad news. It's when I'm feeling broken and alone and fragmented. I'm deciding right now, God, that I'm going to commit to you in any of the circumstances because you are faithful and I can trust you to guide my steps and lead me in the path that you have for me. Second half of verse 5, he goes again to where he started in verse 3 with trust. Trust also in him. You see, you can't commit to God if we don't trust God. Our Christian lives are all based upon one critically important concept. From the beginning of our Christian lives, when we enter into a relationship with God, all the way through the minutes and the hours and days and years that, that we walk with him until the day in which he calls us to be into his presence or he returns home. And that critical word is faith. For by faith we are saved. By faith we walk, not by sight. And so David returns here again to hammer his point home again. I'm going to trust you, Lord. I'm going to to delight in you. I'm going to commit myself to you because I have faith and I believe you. I believe that you are a God who, say, who is who you say that you are and will do what you say you will do. And then once I've done all of these things, verse 7, rest and wait. Rest and wait. What beautiful words of peace. I can rest 
knowing that my life and my future and all of the little intangibles that are associated with it are going to come, to come into being according to God's timing. He is going to bring all these things in his time. And my responsibility is to rest in him and to wait. Harder said, harder done than said, I know. And the rest of your life, <laughs> much of it will be spent learning to do this, to rest and to wait. Verse 23 and 24, and I'm closing here because this is what David says. This is the, the wisdom and the autobiography of a man who isn't just telling us in the opening verses of this psalm what we should do, but a man who has lived it himself. And he writes these words, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have seen, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. Envy is a poor, the poorest of substitutes for what David describes here in this psalm, what he experienced and came to know throughout his life as he comes to the elder years of his life. He had never seen God be unfaithful. He had always seen God provide. It may not have always looked like what he thought it would look like. It may not have always come in the time that he had hoped that it would come him, but it always came. And what I want to leave you with this morning is an encouragement to you to trust to delight in God, to commit yourself to this, and then to wait for God's timing, for his goodness to be unfolded in your life and in the manner in which he, as the Lord, determines. And as you wait, that he would give you rest. Rest.